Welcome to the Upper Room Sermon of the Week. For more information, go to urfellowship.com. Welcome. My name is Chris. If you don't know me, I'm uh, the teaching pastor here. It's good to be here. <clears throat> it's good to see you here. I'm, I'm so excited to be sharing this morning. I haven't, I haven't really taught much this summer. There's been a lot of things going on, but some of the uh, home summer craziness is settling down, so I'll be back to sharing more regularly, which I'm excited about. Um, if you, woo. Uh, so if you were here last week, you saw Josh Graham share. Uh, and he did a great job. Hey, Josh. <clears throat> half-hearted applause for Josh. Um, and I loved, I loved the premise that he talked about. He said that there are these, uh, these what he called coffee mug verses or coffee cup verses in the Bible. And they're these, um, they're, they're coffee mug verses because they're verses that everybody, they like to repeat and they like to put on mugs and, and bookmarks because, because they appeal to people. People can get behind them and affirm what they say and claim them for themselves, which, which is great. Honestly, it is. But, but as he said last week, there is often uh, context around those coffee mug verses that may change the dynamics uh, of those scriptures. And I, and I think actually can make them oftentimes much more powerful verses. Uh, so, so today I want to use that same premise and look at a scripture like that. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can go to Psalm 42. And we'll spend our whole day in Psalm 42, but we'll start out with verse 1 there. Psalm 42, 1 says, As the deer pants for, the stream, for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. So this says, as the deer pants for the streams of water. And that, and that sounds lovely, right? You can almost see the scene in your head. Maybe you've seen a poster or a mug with this on it. You, you, you know, there's a deer in the fog and it's, uh, drinking gently from the stream early in the morning, right? But keep this in mind. A, a panting deer is not just a thirsty deer. A panting deer is a deer that's literally dying of thirst, right? Deer aren't stupid. They don't wait until they're dying of thirst before they go look for water. So a panting deer is a deer that has come down to the riverbed in the heat of the day for a drink and finds the riverbed dry. So let's read the whole psalm, and then we'll drill down on it, all right? So Psalm chapter 42, we'll read the whole thing. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one, with shouts and joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan and the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love, at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Verse 11, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, 
for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. So again, verse 2 says, my soul, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. So this psalmist, we don't really know who exactly wrote this psalm, but the psalmist, it's not, it's not that he doesn't believe in God anymore, but the psalmist can't sense that God is alive at this time, that he's a living God. He doesn't have that personal feeling that there's a God who's there, who he's interacting with, that, that there's a give and take. He's not feeling it. It's gone. Okay, so keep going in a verse. He says, when can I go and meet with God? He's saying, when do I go, when do I get to go meet with God? When do I get to see the face of God? Again, that doesn't mean he doesn't believe there is a God. It means he has lost the relational experience of God's presence. He has no more feeling, no more sight, no more sound of God in his soul. Thoughts about God that used to comfort and strengthen, they don't do it for him anymore. He has lost the reality of God, not belief in God. He has lost the sense of God's presence in his heart and in his soul. He's experiencing spiritual drought, spiritual darkness, and spiritual deadness. We might say he's in like a desert time. He just isn't feeling God in his life. And maybe that's where you are. I think that this is way more common in Christians than we would ever like to admit. But there's something important to see here, and that is that there are there's a number of psalms where the reason the writer of the psalms has lost God's presence and has lost the sense of God's reality. Uh, and, and that is usually because the psalmist has done something wrong. Okay, so the psalmist feels guilty, then he has to confess his sin, and he has to repent. But that doesn't happen here. This psalmist here is experiencing a deep spiritual drought, and he apparently hasn't done anything wrong. So this is important. Because Americans are moralistic, okay? When something goes wrong like this, when, when, when I start to experience spiritual drought, well, I'm sure there's some button I'm not pushing, right? I'm sure there's something on my Christian to-do list that I'm missing. I would say one of the reasons it's tough for Christians to admit to their Christian friends just how deeply spiritually dead they are is their Christian friends might say, What? You're not experiencing his presence? Well, have you prayed in faith? Have you confessed all known sin? Have you claimed his promises? Have you rebuked the devil? Have you pleaded the blood? Have you thanked God for all his many blessings? Are you doing your entire daily Christian to-do list? Obviously, you're doing something wrong. But here we see this guy is not in sin, and he's dying of spiritual thirst. There's no, I'm sorry for my sins, I repent. It doesn't say that. I mean, of course, spiritual deadness can happen as a result of you violating your conscience. But the point is, it can happen even if you're doing your daily Christian to-do list. It can happen to you. Now, the reason you need to know that is, because in our culture, and I'm, I'm going to just warn you, I'm going to beat up on Americans a bit today. All right, I am American. I married an American. I begat two Americans. But I'm going to talk to you about some of the downsides of our culture today. So, so we are moralistic, which means we put a lot of emphasis on behavior. So automatically, because of the culture in which you were raised, you don't expect stuff like spiritual drought to happen unless you do something wrong. So when spiritual drought happens, we do not treat it very well. All right? it's, it's bad enough when it happens, but because we don't deal with it properly, 
it ends up being worse than it has to. Which, which, what should have been like a cough become, ends up becoming pneumonia. Okay? The psalmist doesn't say, he doesn't say, I don't believe in God. He says, I can't feel him. But if you don't do the right thing with that, if you don't treat it properly, God can become so unreal to you, it'll start to overtake everything. Right? Including your beliefs, including your intellect. I meet people all the time who I think this is what has happened to them. Right? They can remember being a Christian, but they don't know now what they are. Uh, they can't completely get rid of their Christian faith, but they, they have deep reservations about God, about faith, about themselves. They're not sure whether they're Christians or not. And I think usually it's because years ago this happened and they never got themselves back on the rails. What started out as a kind of subjective, existential sense of alienation from, from God became something much more serious and sustained. So, so you need to know how to deal with this, because I think most, if not all, Christians will face it at some point. Okay, so there's a right way to handle desert times, spiritual drought, and there's a wrong way to handle it. And this psalm shows us some of both. All right, so the right things to do and the wrong things to do. Okay, so let's start by looking at how we can handle spiritual drought in the wrong way. Okay, so what's he do the wrong, in the wrong way? So the first wrong way to handle spiritual drought in your life is to take yourself out of community. All right, notice verse 4. He says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Then down two verses to verse 6. It says, My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. So we don't know why this has happened, but he's saying that he used to be in a southern part of Judah, in Jordan, and he used to go to the temple. He used to regularly be a part of temple worship, be a part of the feasts, to be a part of the joy and praise. But now he's in the northern part. He's away from the people of God. He's away from the congregation, away from the temple, away from worship. He's up in the north. He's up in the mountain range where Mount Hermon is. And we don't know if he was exiled. We don't know if he moved there. We don't know why, but here's the point. There's individual Bible study, and then there's corporate Bible study, community Bible study. There's individual prayer and worship, and then there's corporate prayer and worship. They're not the same. You need both. He says he remembers fondly the festive throng. When he talks about the festive throng, he's remembering one of the corporate feasts that he had attended or was at at one point. There used to be a bunch of these feasts that Christians would celebrate every year, and the feasts were something very similar to what we're doing today. All right? The feasts were times in which the people of God corporately remembered the great and mighty acts of God, they came from all over the country, they came together, they ate, they, they read the scripture about the exodus and about the blessings of God, and they remembered how he made them a people and how he saved them. Then they recommitted themselves and they praised God together. Americans underestimate the importance of communal spiritual disciplines. I told you I was going to beat up on Americans. Just as Americans tend to be moralistic, they're also very individualistic. Over and over and over again, surveys show 80 to 90% of Americans say 
I can be a good Christian. I can be a spiritual person without going to a church. I can be a very good spiritual person all by myself. 90 to 80, 80 to 90% say that year after year. I'm telling you, that is completely antithetical to all of Christianity. And it's also common sense, too. How do you know you're right by yourself? How can you stay hot by yourself? We want to come and get our little fix and our sermon and our music and go home. But we really don't want to make ourselves accountable. We really don't want to become part of a regular community. A regular community prayer, a big community, a small community, a tight community, a family. We don't want to do that. We're busy. Or we think we're busy. Or, or we're just private. You can fall into or unnecessarily extend spiritual drought because you take yourself out of community. Who are you going to be accountable to? Who are you going to be talking to about your spiritual walk? Who are you going to be learning with? Who are you going to be praying with? So the second wrong way, so that was first, second wrong way you can handle spiritual drought is by, by not taking care of yourself physically. All right? Look at verse 3. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. Think about this for a second. He's saying, I'm not eating. The, the only thing I'm eating are my tears. He stopped eating. Notice something else. He's not sleeping. He said, my tears have been my food day and night. You don't weep all night if you're asleep. Right? So he's not eating and he's not sleeping. What's that mean? It means you can't ignore the fact that there's a physical aspect to your spiritual health. And you can see here that the psalmist's tiredness and lack of eating and sleeping is aggravating the situation. There's a guy named, I've got to get all these names, David Martin Lloyd-Jones. Yeah, he has first, three first names, but he was a physician and, and then later became a pastor. Okay, and this is what he says about verse 3, which is interesting. He says, Some unfortunately hold the view that as long as you are a Christian, it doesn't matter what the condition of your body is. There are some in, those case, in whose case it's clear to me the cause of their depression is mainly physical. People who are physically weak are more prone to attacks of spiritual discouragement and depression. American culture is not just moralistic and individualistic, it's also dualistic and it likes to pit the body and the spirit against each other. When we see somebody who says, I, don't, I just don't feel God, American moralist, dualistic Christians have a tendency to ignore the physical. Lloyd-Jones says you, can't, you, you have a physical aspect as, as well as a spiritual aspect. They're linked. As Christians, we should be the most holistic health people around. Because secular doctors, secular doctors can only focus on the body, the physical. We love doctors, but secular doctors don't take into account the spiritual. Those who are moralists only see behavior. Secular psychology focuses primarily on the emotional. I don't know of another group that sees the spiritual, emotional, and physical linked together as strongly as we do. We have to recognize that there's a physical, emotional, and spiritual component involved in balanced health. And when the physical is not well, it can affect the spiritual, and vice versa. All right, so let's look at some of the right ways this psalmist shows how to face spiritual drought. First, 
Pour out your soul. He says that in verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. Let me tell you what's ironic about this. He says, I don't feel God, right? That's his problem, right? I don't feel God. I get nothing out of worship. I get nothing out of prayer. I get nothing out of Bible reading. I don't sense him there at all. So he talks to God, the God who he can't feel about it. He pours out his soul. And this is what we should be doing. But I don't feel anything. Fine, then talk about it. If nothing else, talk to God about how you're, you're getting nothing out of it. If nothing else, talk to God about how much you miss him. If nothing else, talk to God about his absence. So the first thing is, um, <clears throat> the first thing is pour out your soul to God. Be honest with him. Secondly, examine your hopes. There's something that he says that comes up two times in Psalm 42. It's kind of the theme that runs through this chapter. In chapter 42, verse 5 and verse 11, he says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Now, a question for you about this question. Okay, is this a rhetorical question? Why, my soul, are you downcast? So when someone asks a rhetorical question, they aren't really after information, right? If you say to somebody, what do you think you're doing? You're not really asking what they think they're doing, right? What you're saying is, that was stupid, right? So it's a rhetorical question. Is that what he's doing here? Is he saying, why are you so downcast? Why are you so stupid? I don't think so. The commentators I respect the most say he's really looking for information. He's actually asking himself, why did I get so downcast? He's really doing some self-examination. What he's looking at, or what's he looking at for the answer? His hopes. He says, why am I so downcast? It's because I put my hope in some things that are letting me down. When you're in a spiritual drought, in a desert time, it is a, it's a perfect time to examine your heart. Because spiritual drought reveals false hopes. A perfect example of this is in Psalm 3. Psalm 3 is about when David was on the run for his life because his favorite son, the son he loved the most, Absalom, who the Bible said had long, luscious hair, not important, but he was just trying to take David's throne. Okay? And he was trying to hunt him down and kill him so he could take over as king. There were two things in David's life that, were, that had been where he found his significance. David found his significance, or his glory, in two things. That first, the love of his family. Second, the love of his people. He lost both of them during this time. But in Psalm 3, in verse 3, he says, But you, O Lord, are my shield my glory, and the lifter of my head. It's a pretty famous verse, but do you see what it's saying? What he's saying is, my son used to be my glory. My people used to be my glory. I've lost both those things, but I'm I'm not going to be devastated because I'm relocating my glory in you. Your approval, your love. If I have that, then I won't be devastated by the loss of anything else. I will lift up my head anyway. That's what's happening here. He's saying, one of the reasons I'm so downcast is because there are certain things 
I've put my hope in that can't sustain it, can't sustain me. In desert times or times of spiritual drought, that's a perfect time to look at what you really hope in. And then relocate your hope, shift your hope to God. That's what he's doing. He's not, he's not repenting. He's not beating himself on the chest saying, oh, I must be doing something wrong. I, I guess I'm not really praying enough. I'm not reading my Bible enough. Maybe I need to do this. Maybe I need to do more of that. No. He does a spiritual self-examination. He sees things that he has put his hope in that are not going to be able to sustain his soul. And he relocates his hopes. He shifts his hope back to God. Thirdly, remember the loving kindness of God. Notice how in verse 6 he says, My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will... Oh, sorry. Remember you. Downcast within me, therefore I will remember you. He's very deliberately thinking about something, remembering something specific. Verse 8, by, the day, by day the Lord directs his love, at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. He is deliberately thinking about God's love. And the word there that is translated love, here is the Hebrew word uh, chesed, which means covenant faithfulness, unmerited grace, unconditional love. Some translations translate it as loving kindness. He's, he's thinking about his life, his own personal history, and he's thinking about and finding the grace of God in it. And he has turned it into a song. He turns the loving kindness of God into a song he sings to himself even at night. He's remembering the loving kindness of God. He's reanalyzing his hopes. He's pouring out his soul. And then finally, he takes all that, and what's he do? What should we do when we face spiritual drought? Lastly, Learn to preach to your own heart. Notice he's not, he's not talking to God. He's not saying, why am I so downcast, oh my God? He's not saying, why am I so downcast, oh my people? He's saying, why am I so downcast, oh my soul? He has poured out his soul. He has analyzed his hopes. He has thought about the loving kindness of God. And then at some point, he stops, he stops listening to his own heart, and he starts talking to his heart. Why are you downcast? And I'm realizing more and more that most of the unhappiness in life is due to the fact that we listen to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. In times of spiritual drought and discouragement, there are points where you will have to grab your own heart and say, hey heart, shut up and listen. And this is not buck up. This is preaching the grace of God to yourself. It's telling yourself, you've forgotten God's steadfast love, heart. Remember his loving kindness. Listen, self, if God is for you, who can be against you? Right? Who shall bring any charge against you as God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Who shall separate you from the love of God? Heart. The fifth verse says, notice how real this psalm is. In verse 5 he says, Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. That's his way of saying, 
I can feel him beginning to lift up my spirit, and I will yet praise him. Not I am praising him. Not I will never praise him again. No, I will yet praise him. I'll get back there. The results may happen slowly, but they will happen. The biggest mistake to make during times of spiritual drought is to say, I think God has finally given up on me. He's not there. It makes sense. I'm a failure. I'm inadequate. He's abandoned me. No, says the psalmist, I will yet praise him. He's a loving, kind God. He's a gracious God. He will not abandon you. Well, how do I know? Here's how you and I know. Jesus experienced not just the loss of the feeling of God. He lost God. He had the ultimate spiritual drought. Why? So that he can relate to us? So that in spite of your failures and inadequacy, we know that God will never give up on us? Jesus gave his life so we can have his love unconditionally. If you preach Christ to yourself, you'll make it through the desert. And you'll be better for it. You will have grown. That's what's amazing when you deal with spiritual drought properly. You don't, you don't just get back on track. You get back on the path much further ahead. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray, Lord, for those of us who are feeling like they are in a spiritual drought or a desert place right now. Help us to know that you have not abandoned us that your love is everlasting. Lord, help, help us to treat those times of, of spiritual drought or desert times properly so we can grow in grace and in the knowledge of, your Lord, of you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the honesty and for how real it is. Thank you for your kindness to us, Lord. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.